Let us pray. Our great and glorious and gracious God, we lift your name on high. We acclaim you as infinite in love, wisdom, and power. We adore your holiness, mercy, and faithfulness. You are the creator, ruler, sustainer, and savior. You are the sovereign Lord planning all things and working all things together for the good of your people. You keep your promises to your people even to a thousand generations. And you promise us a glorious future in your presence, in the new creation, in the new heavens and earth. Oh, Father, you have blessed us in Christ Jesus, your son, and through your Holy Spirit. We are a needy people, poor in spirit and utterly dependent upon you. We cast ourselves upon your grace and mercy. Bless us today. Hear us. Help us. Bestow your gifts upon us. May your kingdom come to us and through us. This we pray. Amen. For our lesson of the day, we are in James chapter 3. I will begin reading in verse 12. Here again, the word of God. Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives, or a grapevine bear figs? Thus no spring yields both salt water and fresh. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, God. Let us pray. Father, we do thank you for... Your word, a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. May you give us wisdom to walk in that way, to walk in the pathway of your word, the way of wisdom. This we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. What is the purpose of our lives as Christians? That's a simple question. It's a common question. Maybe it's a question that you have asked or have been asked. Why doesn't God just take us straight to heaven as soon as we're saved? Uh, what more is there to do in this life once we become Christians? What is life all about? Why does God leave us here on this planet? Some would say the answer is evangelism. Uh, once we become Christians, we are to use the remaining years of our lives on earth getting other people to become Christians too. Uh, others would say that we're left on this planet in order to glorify God. And, and that's really the meaning of life is to glorify God. And that's true. But you could ask, couldn't we glorify God even more if he took us straight to heaven where we would be done with sin altogether? Wouldn't that glorify God more? Still others might say it's to build a Christian nation, uh, build a Christian civilization. It's to build Christian cultures and empires. There are other ways to answer the question, too. All of those various answers uh, have truth in them, but I also think they're lacking something. They're missing something uh, important about life, about what God wants us to do with whatever time we have remaining uh, on earth. Even if everyone became a Christian, 
Even if all the nations were discipled, there would still be something for us to do. Something else we are to do to bring God glory here on earth. Something else that must be done here. Think about this. Let me give you a clue. Uh, think about the Gospel of Luke. What the Gospel of Luke in particular tells us about Jesus' early years. Luke chapter 2, verse 40 tells us the child, Jesus, grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. And then in Luke chapter 2, verse 52, really summarizing Jesus' childhood, he says, Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. And so Luke tells us, Twice, as he describes Jesus growing from a boy into a man, he tells us twice that Jesus grew in wisdom. For Jesus, the process of growing from boyhood into manhood was a process not just of growing physically, but of growing in wisdom. Wisdom is what we expect uh, to come with age and experience. Wisdom is maturity, and maturity is wisdom. Even though Jesus was sinless, he had this in common with us. He needed to grow in wisdom. Think about that. Think about the implications of that. Even a sinless human could grow in wisdom. Even a sinless human needed to grow in wisdom. This means even if sin had never entered the world, there would be something for us to do, a process for us. Even if Adam had not turned from God, he would have needed to grow to maturity. And we as his descendants would have needed to grow in this way as well. Even apart from sin, there would be this need for growth in wisdom. Think about this fact uh, with Jesus. When Jesus was a child, he had less wisdom than he had as a full-grown man. He grew in wisdom. Totally apart from dealing with sin or getting saved from sin or converting other people from a life of sin to a life of faith, our lives would still have this purpose. Even in an unfallen world, we would still need to grow. Even in a world that had been completely converted, we'd have this need to mature. And so you could rightfully say, the purpose of our lives, however long God gives us to live in this life, the purpose of this life is to grow wiser. The purpose of this life is to grow into maturity. If you had to summarize what life is all about in one word, that's it. Maturity. Maturing as images of God. Maturing like Jesus. Growing in wisdom. Growing in wisdom makes us like Jesus. And that's really the goal, right? Jesus likeness. Indeed, growing in wisdom makes us like God. God possesses all wisdom. To be godly is to be wise. Wisdom is godliness. Wisdom is the imitation of God. Wisdom is the goal of human life. To be wise is to be truly human. To be wise is to realize God's purpose for your life. It's to come into your own as the, the creature God made you to be. Every aspect of our calling as humans is bound up with this calling to be wise. Our calling to be kings. Our calling to discern good and evil. Our calling to judge. Our calling to have dominion over the creation. It's all bound up in this calling to wisdom. This is why we are to seek wisdom and, and, and to pursue wisdom. 
to seek after wisdom, to find wisdom. This is what God wants for us. God wants us to be wise. God wants to give us wisdom. He delights in us becoming wise. Nothing makes God as our Heavenly Father happier than this for us as His children to become wise. Proverbs 3 tells us, By wisdom God founded the earth and established the heavens. Proverbs 3 tells us wisdom is a tree of life to all who lay hold of her. Wisdom is woven into the creation. The very fabric of the world is woven together by the wisdom of God's world. Everywhere we look, we see God's handiwork. We see signs of God's wisdom. God wants our lives to reflect that wisdom. The wisdom He has designed into the world. The wisdom He has built into the world. God wants us to grow up, to put childish things away, and to live as full-grown men and women. God wants us to grow and to mature. And that's why God doesn't tell us what to do in every given situation. That's why God puts us in difficult situations. It's also that we might learn wisdom. The Pharisees were seeking after a sign. God, we want to know what to do. Just give us a sign. They wanted God to write it in the sky, perhaps, or speak directly to them. But God often does not do that. He doesn't give us those kinds of signs. He doesn't want us to live by signs. He wants us to live by wisdom. In wisdom, there is great blessing. Proverbs says, blessed is the one who finds wisdom, the one who gets understanding, for to gain her is better than, is better gain than silver and gold. Wisdom is more precious than jewels, and nothing you desire can compare with her. That's the book of Proverbs. Praising wisdom, showing us the value of wisdom. In Proverbs 23, the father says to his son, My son, if your heart is wise, my heart too will be glad. Our earthly father delights in us when we grow in wisdom. Our earthly fathers usually delight in us when we grow in wisdom as well. Wisdom is the best thing a father can give a son. Wisdom comes from grasping the principles and patterns God has built into human life, which give to life a kind of order and stability and predictability. Wisdom is all about virtue. It's about being skilled at living. It's the art of living in tune with God's design. Wisdom is having the ability to make discerning judgments. Wisdom makes us the best we can be. Through obedient experience, through prayer, through studying Scripture, through community, we gain wisdom. And as we gain wisdom, we flourish. Wisdom does not come automatically. Wisdom does not come automatically with age. Just because you're getting older, just because you're growing in years, does not mean you are automatically growing in wisdom. There are many people who have lived for many decades and who are still fools. It is possible to be a fool even after several decades of life. Wisdom doesn't come automatically. Wisdom comes from the experience of seeking to obey God of seeking to do what is right, of seeking to live the way God wants us to live in the wide variety of situations we encounter. Wisdom results in a life of excellence. Through wisdom, we employ our time, our talent, our treasure in optimal ways. Wisdom guides us in our use of our time. 
Wisdom guides us in how we employ our talents. Wisdom guides us in how we use our resources. Without wisdom, we drift through life. We're rather aimless without wisdom. We have no real direction without wisdom. We cannot live life in an intentional way. The fool doesn't mature. He's just sort of spinning his wheels. His life doesn't really go anywhere. His life lacks significance. His life is wasted. Whatever earthly success he may have, his life lacks lasting value because he lacks wisdom. Now, the Bible's wisdom literature, especially in Proverbs, in the Sermon on the Mount, which I would consider a wisdom sermon, uh, in the Psalms, here in James, the Bible's wisdom literature always distinguishes two paths. The path of wisdom and the path of folly. Or as James puts it here, heavenly wisdom and demonic wisdom. Or as Proverbs puts it, wisdom and foolishness. Heavenly wisdom, of course, flows out of true faith. James has described this true faith in chapter 2. And now in chapter 3, he's describing the wisdom that flows out of this faith. He calls it a heavenly wisdom. And of course, demonic wisdom flows out of a demonic faith. He described this demonic faith in chapter 2 as well. Now he shows in chapter 3 the demonic wisdom that comes out of it. True wisdom starts with the fear of God. True wisdom begins with the fear of God. Whereas the fear of man keeps us bound to the the earthly wisdom. Earthly wisdom and heavenly wisdom. Heavenly wisdom growing out of faith in God. Demonic wisdom growing out of demonic faith. Heavenly wisdom that arises from fearing God. Earthly wisdom that arises from fearing man. These two wisdoms represent two paths. And the wisdom literature is always contrasting these two paths. Listen to some of these texts. Proverbs 4.11 I have directed you in the way of wisdom. See, there's this reference to the way. A way of wisdom. Proverbs 9.6 Proceed in the way of understanding. Psalm 119.104 I hate every false way. So, there's a way of wisdom, a way of truth, and there's also a false way. Proverbs 16.25, there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it is the way of death. The fool might think he's on the right path, but it actually ends in death. That is the destination of the path he is traveling. This way he is traveling seems right, but really it's wrong. It ends in deception, in regret, in pain, in destruction. Now, James describes this counterfeit wisdom, this pseudo-wisdom, this earthly wisdom, this demonic wisdom in verses 14, 15, and 16. And we'll come back next week and look at his description of this counterfeit wisdom. We'll do that next week. But today I want to look at this description of heavenly wisdom that you find in verse 17. This is how James unpacks the heavenly wisdom we are to pursue. This is how James describes it. He actually gives us a seven-fold description of heavenly wisdom. But don't think of these as seven points strung together uh, as a kind of arbitrary list, as if James is just putting these things together, but there's no real order or pattern or connection. 
Instead, you might do better to think of it as seven facets of a diamond. The list here gives us seven features of wisdom that all belong together. These seven categories are all inseparable. When we talk about the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, we often speak this way. It's fruit, singular, that is unfolded in these nine virtues that that were given there in Galatians chapter 5. And so it is here. There is a singular wisdom that manifests itself in these seven ways. These seven categories he gives us are inseparable. My guess is you could take these seven categories of wisdom that James gives us here, and you could take all the things that Solomon says about wisdom in the Bible's wisdom literature, most of which Solomon is responsible for, and you could drop them into these seven categories. And you can see how they fit into these seven categories. Everything that Solomon says about wisdom, I think, fits into these seven categories. It's also interesting to note that in Isaiah 11, Isaiah gives a sevenfold description of the Holy Spirit that will rest upon the Messiah. The Spirit of the Messiah is called the Spirit of Wisdom and Understanding. And so you could think of this sevenfold description of wisdom in James 3 as a sevenfold description of the Spirit's work in us. We have been given a spirit of wisdom. And as the Spirit bears the fruit of wisdom in our lives, this is what it looks like. This is another way of looking at the fruit that the Spirit bears in our lives. So first, James says wisdom is pure. This term could also be translated as chaste, which has to do obviously with sex and with marriage. And indeed, a great deal of the Bible's wisdom literature is about sex. It's about sexual temptation. It is about intersexual dynamics, the way in which men and women are to relate to one another. In fact, it's really interesting to consider Proverbs in this regard. Proverbs has a great deal of teaching about purity, about sexual purity. One of the things that a father must teach his son is sexual purity. The whole book of Proverbs tells a story. It may not look that way, but the book of Proverbs really is a narrative from beginning to end. From beginning to end, it is a love story. It is the story of a courtship. And in the book of Proverbs, the father is teaching his son what kind of woman to pursue and what kind of woman to avoid. And he unfolds the characteristics of each. And we find there that the son is to pursue lady wisdom and he is to avoid the harlot folly. If he wants to grow in wisdom, if he wants to remain pure, this is what he must do. Pursue lady wisdom, reject the harlot folly. And men, when you choose a bride, this is in essence what you are doing. You are choosing your lady wisdom, the woman who will be your counselor, who will, who will be, uh, as, as you come to know her more and more deeply, she will become more and more a source of wisdom too. And then think about how the book of Proverbs ends. Proverbs ends with this young man who is a prince, now becoming king, having married his lady wisdom, so she is now his queen, And so the book ends in Proverbs 31 with the wife of noble character. This young man has made Lady Wisdom his bride and now they will reign as king and queen together. Purity before marriage and in marriage has its rewards. And you see that in the book of Proverbs, what a life of purity yields. Purity and wisdom go together. Uh, It takes great wisdom to remain sexually pure. 
The wise will understand what purity entails in male-female relationships. The wise will learn and understand what this purity means for things like clothing and entertainment and speech. All of those areas where sexual sin lurks, where all kinds of impurity lurks. The wise will strive for purity. They will strive to live with clean hands and a clean heart, desiring and doing what is right without being stained or polluted by the ways of the world. Wisdom produces a kind of holy innocence in our lives. And this is especially seen in our, in our sexuality. James begins there with purity. The wise will seek purity. Second, James says this wisdom is peaceable. James most likely here has our relationships with one another in view. I think he's talking here about peace horizontally with one another in our community and our relationships. But of course, horizontal peace always presupposes vertical peace. Peace with God is really the foundation of our peace with one another. What does James mean here when he says that that the wise will be peaceable? Well, it means the wise, the wise man will seek to live at peace with everyone. As much as it depends upon him, he is going to seek to live at peace with everybody. Wisdom has a social dimension. Wisdom builds and sustains true community. In fact, I think you can often measure someone's wisdom by the people they surround themselves with, by their network of friends, the network of friends they've built. It's a sign of wisdom or the lack of wisdom. The wise man is a man of peace. He is a peacemaker and a peacekeeper. He knows how to keep short accounts and settle relational disputes. He's not quarrelsome or argumentative. He's slow to anger. He's quick to forgive. He is emotionally mature and so he can hold his emotions in check. It's so often our emotions getting the best of us that uh, can be destructive in our relationships. They can wreak all kinds of havoc in our relationships. The wise man will hold his emotions in check. The wise are skilled at negotiating peace when a relationship is broken. He understands how to seek and grant forgiveness. He understands how to confess his own sin and how to receive the confession of another. He uses words in constructive rather than destructive ways. You can't be a peaceable man, a wise man in this kind of way, without following what James has taught previous in this chapter about the tongue. The wise man will build friendships, he will build community, all in order that he might extend the peace of Christ to others. The wise man is a man who loves peace. But maintaining the peace means really maintaining the peace. The wise man does not keep a fake peace by avoiding confrontation when something needs to be confronted. Just as Jeremiah talked about prophets who cried out, peace, peace, when there is no peace, fooling the people into thinking the judgment wasn't coming, it's possible for us to do that in our relationships, to pretend that a peace is there when it's not. The wise man is not a peace faker. The wise man strives for real unity. Matthew 5.9, Jesus says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. The Son of God, Jesus, is the peacemaker, And all who want to be called sons of God should imitate His wise peacemaking as well. 
The wise man is peaceable. He is a man of peace. Now, James is going to have more to say about this social peace brought in by wisdom in chapter 4. So we'll have another opportunity to address this. But uh, there you see in this list what it means to be peaceable. Go to the third item here. James says this heavenly wisdom is gentle. The word here could also be translated as kind. There's a gentleness that comes with wisdom. There is a kindness that comes with wisdom. The wise person is not going to be harsh or overbearing. He's not going to be mean or cruel. Now, this doesn't mean the wise man is a pushover. Uh, Sometimes in wisdom we have to be firm and direct. You might think of Jesus pronouncing warnings and then woes on the Pharisees or the blunt rhetoric that James himself will use against the rich who defraud and oppress the poor later in chapter 5. The same James who says wisdom is manifest in gentleness in chapter 5 says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for for the miseries that are coming upon you. That's gentle James giving this kind of warning. Weep and howl for the miseries that are about to descend upon you. See, wisdom recognizes the complexities and nuances needed. Gentleness doesn't mean you have no backbone. Rather, I I put it this way. Maybe this is one way of capturing it. Uh, It means you are an iron fist in a velvet glove. You can be firm when firmness is called for. You can be soft when softness is called for. To be gentle is to be considerate and thoughtful. It means you don't uh, create any unnecessary dissension or turbulence in your relationships. But in order to be gentle, you must be strong. You can only be gentle from a position of strength. To be gentle, you must be strong, but you must have your strength under control. It must be strength that is directed. So your strength can be used for the good of the community. Which is what James is doing. When James tells the rich to weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon them, he's still being gentle in a sense. He's being kind to them, warning them, while there's still time to repent. To be gentle means you would never resort to violence unless very specific criteria are met. The Bible lays out very specific criteria for things like just war and self-defense. The gentleman is never going to resort to violence unnecessarily or inappropriately. The gentleman is wise in how he uses his strength. Fourth, willing to yield or open to reason is another way to translate this. This means the wise man is a good listener. He's not just a reactive listener. He listens to understand, not just respond. So often, when somebody else is talking and we're having some kind of heated discussion, we're not thinking, we're not taking in and really absorbing what they're saying. We're thinking about the points we want to make as soon as he's got to take a breath and we can jump in to the conversation. James says here, the wise man is willing to yield. He's open to reason. He's going to listen. We've all dealt with people who are bad listeners. It's a mark of folly to not be willing to listen. The wise man is willing to hear another's point of view, another perspective. He is open to persuasion. He's reasonable. The wise man, he's, he's, he's willing to yield. So he wants to hear both sides of a story before jumping to conclusions. How often do people show their foolishness by jumping to a conclusion about something when they've only heard one side of the story? The wise man is going to be deliberate rather than impulsive. 
He's going to want to know all the facts before passing a judgment. It's this quality of wisdom right here that makes someone a good leader. That makes someone a good decision maker. That makes someone a good judge. When you can look at a situation from different angles, different points of view, you're not simple-minded. You're sober-minded. You're, you're clear-headed. You're clear-thinking. Wisdom bears fruit in this way. When wisdom is at work in our lives, it has this effect. This being willing to yield is really the opposite of being obstinate. It's the opposite of being hard-headed. Now, it doesn't mean you're naive on the other side. I like what G.K. Chesterton said uh, about this. G.K. Chesterton said, the point of having an open mind is like an open mouth. It is to close on something solid. And that really is the point. We're not supposed to be so open-minded that our brains fall out. But we're to be open-minded in the sense that we're willing to listen before we make a judgment. We don't rush to judgment. That's really the idea here. You're careful in giving counsel, careful in making judgments. Fifth, full of mercy and good fruits. This probably has to do with the care that we show to those who are in need. The fruit of God's mercy in our lives is showing mercy to others in need. When God has shown us mercy, that mercy flows through our life out into the lives of others. God has mercifully met our needs, so we mercifully meet the needs of others. The wise man is a man of compassion. He will always show compassion that is appropriate to the situation. Now understand, mercy in the Bible is not unconditional. And the wise man will be wise in how he shows mercy, how he dispenses mercy. We need wisdom to know how to best help someone. Uh, mercy should follow certain rules that are laid out for us in Scripture, like he who doesn't work shouldn't eat. Uh, mercy sometimes must limit mercy. Sometimes it would be unwise and therefore unmerciful to show someone mercy. Sometimes in showing mercy, you can actually subsidize all the wrong things in their lives. Uh, and that's not wise. That's foolish. But the wise man is a man of mercy. His life is characterized by mercy because he knows he has received mercy. And his mercy is fruitful. When others taste it, they realize they are tasting life. They know they're eating from a tree of life. And I want you to notice this because we see this again and again. And I don't want you to lose sight of this. Wisdom is not an ivory tower kind of thing in Scripture. Wisdom doesn't just serve the contemplative life. It serves the active life. It isn't just intellectual. It's practical. Wisdom comes out your fingertips. If you have wisdom, it shapes the way you live in everyday life. If we are wise, it will transform how we relate to others. Again here, we see that wisdom is social. And it produces social virtues. It shapes the whole wide variety of our relationships in life. Wisdom is not passive. It's active. It bears fruit. Again, it produces something, something tangible that is good. When you're wise, as James says at the very beginning of this section, you show it by your good conduct, by the goodness of your life. And of course, that is seen in mercy. Sixth, he says, his heavenly wisdom is without partiality. This is why wisdom is especially needed for those who are in leadership positions, uh, people who are making judgments. It's why you need wisdom if you're a civil magistrate or if you are a manager of people at work. It's why you need wisdom if you're a parent. 
uh, and you've got children, you have to make judgments about siblings who are, who are quarreling with one another. That's why you have to have wisdom if you are uh, an elder or a pastor in the church. Recall the emphasis on the sin of favoritism back in chapter 2, the sin of partiality that James addressed back at the beginning of chapter 2. Here he returns to that theme and shows us that avoiding that kind of partiality, that kind of favoritism, is a mark of wisdom. What we saw when we looked at the beginning of chapter 2 is that in the courts of the church, elders must be impartial judges and shepherds. They should be just, they should be fair, they should be even-handed. Wisdom leads us to be impartial. It leads us to be nonpartisan in these kinds of situations. Playing favorites in a community or in a family or even in a, in a nation, in a society, just creates division. It destroys trust. The wise man knows how to judge a situation. He knows how to judge between people, whether it is, a, again, a parent of young kids, when, when you've got siblings who are arguing with one another, a parent will know how to step in and act as an impartial judge. Uh, or maybe in, in a church situation where two believers have a conflict and arbitration is needed. In those situations, any hint of favoritism or partiality must be avoided Again, James is showing us this kind of judgment, making these kind of clear-headed, objective judgments, being able to be objective about a situation, this is a mark of wisdom. And then finally, seventh, he says this wisdom, this heavenly wisdom is without hypocrisy. The word here, uh, hypocrisy, of course, is well known. To live without hypocrisy is to live a life of sincerity, a life of authenticity, a life of integrity. Think about Jesus who condemned the Pharisees for being hypocrites, for pretending to be something they were not, for saying one thing and doing something else. Their words and their lifestyle didn't align. And Jesus ripped the mask off. He exposed their hypocrisy. They were not what they claimed to be. And again, this is something we've seen all throughout James' letter. Wisdom is single-minded. The wise man does not live a double life. He is not double-minded. He's single-minded. He's single-hearted. He is consistent. He's anchored. He's grounded. And it's his single-mindedness that really gives his life its direction. To live without hypocrisy means all your various desires in life are all subordinated to one overarching goal. And that one overarching goal has to be pleasing God. And all your various desires have to be integrated into that ultimate desire of pleasing God. To be wise, to live a singular life, means God is your highest good. And so all your other desires are harmonized under this one desire. This means you take the long-term, big-picture view of life. It means you put God at the center of your life. It means you don't need immediate gratification. You're, not, you're living in the moment, but not for the moment. It means you can live without the praise of men, because ultimately it's the praise of God that matters most to you. To live without double-mindedness is to want one thing. It's to want to please God. It's to want to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. You know, here's an example of double-mindedness. The kind of double-mindedness James wants us to avoid. If you've got a desire to lose weight and you've got a competing desire for donuts, okay, you tell me you want to lose weight, but then you're going to Krispy Kreme for breakfast every single day, I would say your desires are in conflict and I would say your desire to lose weight is not winning that battle. 
There's nothing that integrates those desires. There's nothing that unites them and brings them together. They're contradictory. To live without hypocrisy means to live with integrity. It means that there is this one overarching desire that integrates all your other desires. Sure, in life there are a lot of things we want besides pleasing God. We have a lot of other desires. But to live a singular life, a life of integrity, means we discipline those desires, we rein them in, we submit them to this biggest desire, this greater desire to please God. That's integrity. Where all your other desires are integrated into this one desire. And this is wisdom. This is what the life of wisdom looks like. This is the wisdom that descends from above. In this sevenfold description, James is showing us the wisdom of God as it is refracted through a human life. This is the kind of wisdom God gives. Not the world's wisdom. This is divine wisdom. The life of the wise man is a life of purpose. It's a life with gravitas. A life with direction. The wise man knows who he is. He knows what his life is about. He knows the path he is traveling. And he knows the destination. He knows where he wants to go and how to get there. To have wisdom is to walk the right path. It's to walk through life skillfully. It's to walk with God. Let me wrap this up. James concludes this section in verse 18 with a proverb. I've said a little bit about this before, but I want to say something else about it again. He ends with this proverb. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. James here sums up heavenly wisdom by going back to peace. He sums up the life of heavenly wisdom in terms of peace. This is what I find interesting. James began this section asking, who is wise? Who is understanding among you? And James is not, remember, he's writing to these Jewish Christians, and I think in asking that question, he's not just saying, look around the room and find a wise man in your midst. But he's saying, look around at your history as the Jewish people, as the people of God. And of course, who is the preeminent man of wisdom and understanding in Israel's history? It is Solomon. In fact, we read about uh, Solomon's gift of wisdom in 1 Kings chapter 3 this morning. Solomon is the master of wisdom, the preeminent wise man in Israel. The wisest merely human man to have ever lived. Now this is what's interesting. The name Solomon means peace. The Hebrew name Solomon is closely related to the Hebrew word shalom. You can hear that similarity. Solomon, shalom. It's really the same. The name Solomon means peace. Solomon is a man of wisdom and therefore a man of peace. In other words, what James is doing here, he's writing in Greek, but he's thinking in Hebrew, and I'm certain he expected his original audience to catch this. James ends this section on wisdom with a pun on the name of the wisest man to ever live, Solomon. When he speaks here of peace, they're thinking shalom, they're thinking Solomon. In fact, I think this whole section, verses 13 through 18, can be viewed as a kind of commentary on Solomon's life. Solomon has great wisdom, but then he falls away into foolishness. He falls from the heavenly wisdom into the demonic wisdom. And so Solomon's life shows us both ways, the way of wisdom and then the way of folly. 
Solomon began humbly and meekly seeking wisdom as James describes in verse 13. That wisdom was manifest in his life and in his reign. But then he fell into the kind of selfish ambition and sensuality and confusion and arrogance that James describes in verses 14, 15, and 16. Think of his marriages to foreign women, his accumulation of gold and and horses for an army and slaves. And so his legacy was mixed. His legacy was greatly tarnished. As Israel divided into northern and southern factions after his death, largely because he had departed from the way of heavenly wisdom and gone after the way of earthly wisdom. His reign had not produced the kind of peace promised in his name or in his original gift of wisdom. As if to say, look, if you don't have wise rulers in your community, your community is going to fragment and fracture even the way Israel did after Solomon's reign. But verses 17 and 18 describe the other side of Solomon's legacy. The beginning of his reign when he sought God's wisdom. When he sought to live by the heavenly wisdom. And of course the wisdom writings he has left to us. And Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon and Job. The point of your life is wisdom. The point of your life is to pursue wisdom. To grow into maturity. To show forth these sevenfold virtues James has described as the life of wisdom. This is the standard of excellence by which your life and your legacy will be measured. This wisdom is what gives your life grounding and purpose and direction. This wisdom is what brings you to the goal of godliness, the goal of Jesus-likeness. Don't try to walk two paths at once. Don't leave a mixed legacy the way Solomon did. Get on the path to wisdom and stay there. Walk that path. Don't waste your life playing around with earthly wisdom, which is really no wisdom at all. Our culture is so shaped by the earthly wisdom. This earthly demonic wisdom, it's so manifest in our culture in all kinds of ways. It beckons to us. It, it, it tempts us. It's like the harlot folly calling out to us, seeking to seduce us. But James is saying, don't go that way. Go this way. Don't go down the path of foolishness. Walk in the way of wisdom. Walk in the path of wisdom. The path followed by Jesus Himself. Yes, Solomon was the wisest man to ever live, at least for that window of time in his life before he departed from the path. But when Jesus arrived on the scene, what did Jesus say? One greater than Solomon is here. And where did that wisdom take him? He followed that wisdom all the way to the cross and then to glory. And now he beckons to us. Take up your cross and come follow me. Let's pray together. Father, we know that to know You is to know wisdom. We thank You that You have revealed Your wisdom in the world You have created and especially in Your Son. For indeed, in Your Son, the heavenly wisdom has descended. The heavenly wisdom has come down to earth. Father, we thank You for the wisdom embodied in Christ Jesus. May we seek out His wisdom. May we pursue His wisdom. May we value His wisdom as worth more than gold and silver. Father, may we follow Him in the way of wisdom. Living lives of bearing our crosses. Living lives that ultimately result in glory. 
Father, would you give us this wisdom, the wisdom that comes from above, through Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Let us bow our knees before our Father in heaven. Father, you are our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Father, we thank you that you are with us, that you are our fortress, you uphold our lives. We give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. There is none like you. You are great and greatly to be praised. Father, in Your infinite wisdom, You have determined the time set for us and the places that we should live. We thank You for placing us in the city of Birmingham and ask that You give us wisdom and faithfulness as we seek to walk as Your people in the power of Your Spirit. We lift up the churches of Cahaba Heights and surrounding areas, St. Stephen's Episcopal, Cahaba Heights Baptist, Cahaba Heights United Methodist Church, Cahaba Park Presbyterian, Cahaba Heights Church of Christ, Mountain Brook Community Church, Brookwood Baptist Church, St. Peter's Anglican, and Christ Church Branchville. We ask You, Lord, to bless and strengthen their ministries and fellowship as they seek to bear witness to Jesus Christ. Grant that their pastors and officers guard the deposit entrusted to them, standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the Gospel. Sustain, sustain the saints, Lord, in these churches, that they may live holy lives and be rich in good works toward their neighbors. Father, we ask Your blessing on our schools and homeschools, that parents, teachers, and administrators would have wisdom to form and instruct our children, and that every thought would be taken captive to obey Christ. We pray for all influencing the growth and maturity of our children, and for our college students that they would stand firm in the faith. Father, we ask You to bless the work of Theopolis as they seek to train men and women to lead reformation and renewal in Your church. Bless the upcoming course this week with Dr. David Field and bless the students participating in the course. Strengthen and build up their church communities through the teaching and worship that happens this week. Father, Your Son, Jesus Christ, went about doing good and healing all manner of sickness and disease among the people. Continue in our hospitals and research centers His gracious work among us, especially those ministering to people affected by the novel coronavirus. Console and heal the sick. Grant to the researchers, physicians, nurses, and assisting staff wisdom and skill, diligence and patience. Prosper their work, O Lord, and send down Your blessing upon all who serve the suffering. We trust Your promise that You work all things together for the good of those that love You, that are called according to Your purpose. Not even a hair can fall from our heads apart from You, Father. Father, Your Word tells us that if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. We ask on behalf of Pastor Melatitis and the Greek Evangelical Church of Volos in Greece that You would grant them wisdom as they seek to respond to the situation in Greece with Turkey opening up their borders. May Your church seek Your kingdom and Your righteousness in these matters. And now we summarize all these prayers using the words our Savior Christ has taught us. 
Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, we forgive our debts. 